This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Data exhaust became a big idea back around the beginning of the big data era. Everyone's got a lot of sensors and processes that are creating tons of data that they're not using for much. But now it's so cheap to transmit and store and analyze data that it's possible to get some value from it. In hardware and connected devices, cameras are the best-known creators of data exhaust. They're everywhere, and they're collecting images all the time, and you could, with machine learning, draw a lot of conclusions about what's going on in your environment if you care to analyze the data. But in this episode of the Hardware Podcast, we focus on exhaust from microphones, drawing conclusions from sound data, and we also talk a bit about using sound to express data, creating the audio equivalent of visualizations. My co-host David Craner is off this week. My guest is Cameron Turner, partner data scientist at the Data Guild. Cameron just wrote a report called Finding Profit in Your Organization's Data, Examples and Best Practices. That report is available now from O'Reilly. You'll find it at O'Reilly.com slash hardware, and there's also a link to it in the show notes for this episode. Ironically, as we recorded this episode about sound, we experienced a bit of intrusive noise ourselves. You'll hear the Blue Angels occasionally in the background. They were rehearsing right above our office in San Francisco on the day we recorded this. So tell me a little bit about the, the, the paper you've written. Yeah, so the paper was based on this notion of you know IoT not being something that's net new and, and something that we hear a lot from our clients at the Data Guild where the notion that you could go and collect a lot of new data based on new sensing technologies and convert that into machine learning that then generates value um, is a good one. However, if you think about you know all of those steps data collection, aggregation, ETL, and then applying some learning and recommendation on top of that. Those are not um, new capabilities. Uh, They are to some industries. Mm -hmm. But if you look at just the first step, um, the paper is around the notion of uh, finding value in your data exhaust. And Mm. most industries have some form of data exhaust. There's different levels of quality. Um, Mm -hmm. You have different sparsity levels, quality levels, Um, different challenges that you might have, data latency. However, there's always something there and there's always something that you can harvest and and generate value with. So um, the idea was to think about what assets you might have today that you could sort of quickly convert into value versus trying to build an IoT strategy from the ground up. Hmm. So so you're looking at sort of companies that have perhaps added, uh, you know, a sensor here, a data source there, uh, and they find yeah. that it's streaming in, they're not quite sure what to do with it, but they haven't gone and spent tens of millions of dollars implementing an, an overall you know, system for capturing this stuff. Exactly. And a lot of times what we see is that data sets that were built for the purpose of fault detection and diagnosis um, go back, you know, back into the 70s and 80s where you would be doing data logging and you would mm-hmm. have data capture and even serial out you know, capabilities on some of these devices. But it really was for the purpose of um, understanding and diagnosing issues as they happen. So turning mm-hmm. a light red and then going out and fixing something. 
But as it turns out, and we've learned, you know, by now looking at data longitudinally and bringing together disparate sources and, and now with what IoT enables in terms of uh, central aggregation and mm -hmm. comparison, that there is this capability to use that for optimization and efficiency. So it's not just about preventing sort of the negative side, it can be about improving the positive. So these, uh, you know, companies that maybe have a, a legacy SCADA system or something that, that a lot of machinery is plugged into that's doing that kind of low-level control, how easy is it to plug into those systems and get modern data out of them? Yeah, there are some challenges. I mean, I think you, you definitely aren't absolved from the challenges of data sparsity and having to go and backfill and do data cleansing, as, as everyone is familiar with in terms of you know, applying um, learning on top of data sets. Um, but what we see also a lot of times is that you may be missing one or two key data elements that sort of convert that otherwise sort of dark data set into something that's um, robust and, and can produce prediction. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where our interest came uh, in on IoT and on sensing is, you know, are there places where we could add value by adding one or two data points to an existing data set that then turns it into, um, you know, a new data product for that organization? So among, among the kinds of data exhaust you're looking at is sound, right? Yeah, so sound, I think we found a couple of different applications for. One is the sensing of sound for the purpose of generating a new data point, sound and vibration. Um, and the other is uh, for interpretability. So using mm -hmm. sound as a mechanism by which we can sort of view our data with our ears and measure things on a bunch of different um, parameters um, hmm. beyond just, um, you know, a, a one-dimensional level. So uh, you're making sense of data that you're, of sound data that you're getting from something both analytically with software and you're using sound as a way to translate for for human interpretation that's right yeah and so there's sort of two things you can think about sound as a data source itself or sound as a mechanism by which you can consume uh, information and um, one of the things we've been interested in and especially in closing the computer human loop is what are the other senses that you can leverage in order to uh, make use of, of data in real time hmm. so this is like i'm thinking of like hunt for red october and the scene where the sonar guy is like listening to the sounds and can't can't figure out what they are the computer can't <laughs> interpret them and then he speeds them up and listens to them himself and can make sense of them and it's a submarine yeah, that's yeah, right exactly <laughs> yeah i think that's a good way to think about it um, you know this this sample i'm about to play uh, is from a data center so the goal here was hearkening back to sort of the industrial revolution if you think about a manager of a factory. If they're standing up on their platform and looking out across their factory, they can use their ears and their eyes um, and probably even their nose and their sense of smell to, to, um, to assess how things are going that mm -hmm. day. Um, if a machine is breaking down, which machines are turned on? Um, at what level are those machines producing? And somewhere along the way with the information revolution, we lost that capability. You know, hmm. we went from me mechanical machines that had sound and smells and, and noises and all the rest into a space where um, they're blinking lights at best. And, and we're even kind of beyond that now with cloud. You can't even see the computer where mm -hmm. most of your, mm -hmm. your code is running. Um, so for this project, we were working with um, a large Bay Area tech company and one of their data centers. Um, to try to understand information bottlenecks and where hmm. latency occurred. Um, and so the exercise that we did, and this was kind of you know beyond the, the core goal of the project, but what we wanted to do was build a system for a systems operations center where operators could sort of hear or have that equivalent sense of what uh, you know, a, a manufacturing manager might mm -hmm. have in, in sort of the turn of the century, the, you know, the 19th century into uh -huh, the 20th uh -huh. century um, experience in terms of running, running a system like that. Huh. So let's, let's hear it. Okay. 
Okay, so there, you're, we're hearing a few different things there. So um, in addition to sort of the typical uh, sound elements that we you know, think of like pitch and amplitude, the volume of the sound and the level of the sound, um, we're also using modulation as different um, dimensions, you could say, that we can use to convey information. Mm -hmm. So in this case, there's a low-level buzz that um, indicates that a server is running. Mm -hmm. um, and you can hear it running and the, the level of that it's running, sort of like the engine RPM is the mm -hmm. CPU level that, that, okay. that server is operating at. And then you can hear two different kinds of pings that happen. One that's a, a very clean, clear sound, and that's an event that happened on that server. It was a request for um, a transaction that was fulfilled with zero latency. Okay. And then there's another ping type that has sort of a more gravelly or grungy sound, and that's when there's latency, and the level of modulation is basically how much latency occurred. Hmm. So that gives you a capability to do a couple things. Understand sort of the steady state, you know, the Boolean or things on, yeah. on and running well. And then on a case-by-case -case basis, be able to sort of pick out events that may or may not be troubling uh, okay. for the operator. And the reason this can be handy for someone who's in a systems operations center setting is they might be heads down working on one issue and they need to continue to monitor the health of the entire system and look mm -hmm. for other areas. Oftentimes people who've worked in you know, data center operations know that you get sort of bogged down in one issue and that's right when a fire crops up in another area right. that goes um, sort of unattended for too long because your focus is diverted. And um, so using sound is an extra layer in addition to what you might see on the heads up displays and on the... Um, system operation center walls and the LCD huh. screens gives you an extra, it takes advantage of what humans have um, in terms of signal and pattern recognition. Right. Do you have a term for it? Like audioization? Something um, comparable to, to visualization? Yeah, data sonification is data I think sonification. The, the one you'll see and there's a few different tools online if you search for it. Cool, cool. So just to be clear, that was um, data that you were getting in, in digital form from the server farm management layer and you're assigning sounds to the values and then playing those? That's exactly right. So it came in as a data matrix and this was a project that we collaborated with uh, CCRMA, the Karma Group at Stanford University mm -hmm. and uh, Rob Hamilton who was there um, to, in order to sort of experiment with this in a, in a real world setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you see this as possibly being you know, useful for, for managing data overload and giving people sort of a, a much more intuitive connection to the data so that rather than just hearing a lot of alerts and not being sure what they mean, you have this extra visceral aspect that you can use to, to understand the intensity of the alerts and the frequency of the alerts and, and kind of the pattern of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the challenges. We don't operate in a, in a world where you're allowed to focus on one signal anymore, really in any job. Um, you have to be able to synthesize a number of different sources hmm. without um, necessarily having to do channel switching um, you know, through those different sources. And, and beyond that, even understand the relationship between those sources in an intuitive way. And humans are very well wired for that activity. Mm -hmm. um, but the tools we have today don't really enable that. If you're looking at sort of a typical XY graph, you might have time on the x-axis and some level on the y-axis, and that's kind of all you're given. Right, right. Um, so the capability to sort of consume things is important. But another point that you make that's really important is, is how can you filter or how can your mind filter and then essentially turn on or start to focus on something when it's the right time to do so. And mm -hmm. in, the, in the meantime, 
sort of ignore um, the signal that's not actually creating value. And I think that sound has that capability where sometimes um, visual stimuli or visual data visualization doesn't give you um, mm. sort of that capability. You're sort of uh, you know left to to stare at something that has no meaning. Right, right, right. Yeah, and your and your ears give you a very good way of sort of understanding baselines and then hearing changes from them. That's right. Yeah. Have you experimented with uh, with harmony in in sonifications at all? Sort of like using you know. You could imagine that uh, um, you have that pattern going, the one that you just played on like four different frequencies and you're modulating them. And when mm-hmm. things are well, there's a sonorous chord. And mm-hmm. when things are not well, it starts to starts to fall out. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You could imagine that uh, it's playing along in a major scale and then things start to go wrong and you get a bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it was really eye-opening to, to work with folks at Karma and to talk about these other dimensions that we might be able to pick apart, like modulation, which, um, you know, at, that now that it, it, you know, we've played around with it, you can see, mm-hmm. oh, that's a very sort of natural um, sort of knob to turn. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, major, uh, minor, being able to look at um, complexity. The nice thing about music is, you know, we have a capability to, if you think about sort of a typical, um, you know, piano piece, you're listening to maybe three or four voices simultaneously and, right. you know, dozens if you're listening to a symphony. And we have a capability to synthesize that. So you might imagine in a data center, you might not be listening to just one server or service, but you might have a whole symphony of systems working together. Mm-hmm. And yet a single human could understand and comprehend how those things are interacting and when they're working right. and when they're not. Awesome. So what do you want to play for us next? So we have another example here. This is from um, a project that we did. Um, and we talked about in a couple of O'Reilly um, venues, but we did a project to look at uh, Caltrain. So this is on the sensing side. We were trying to understand uh, a very basic question. There's been some issues with safety along the Caltrain line. So we did some recording of Caltrain along the Caltrain line and then did some analysis, but I'll play a sample right now. All right, so that sounded like a recording of, uh, of, ju- of just Caltrain going by. Yeah, so that's just an example of a Caltrain going by. The one thing to notice there is um, that they followed what's, what the uh, Federal Railroad Administration requires, which is a too long, one short uh, blast um, as they go, uh, as they approach an intersection. Now, the difference is that the federal guidelines say to blast 15 seconds prior to uh, crossing a major intersection. Now, if you think about uh, 15 seconds. That's a, a long ways away. Yeah. Um, and actually, for us here in the Bay Area, the the Caltrain line is crossing intersections about every 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't really work. So the, yeah. the Caltrain operators uh, and engineers have adapted to blast at appropriate time, which is just before um, they they make the crossing. Um, but it's it's an increasingly interesting problem. We we do have a challenge with uh, safety. We've had some deaths on the line. Um, this year and 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 every year actually um, because of of safety um, and so we wanted to understand a few things about it um, the volume levels that were happening along the Caltrain line uh, compliance with the requirements and then whether those requirements really made sense or not mm-hmm. um, so in this example we deployed uh, a sound sensor very close to a major crossing um, at Churchill Street in Palo Alto. And we're able to record for a month all of the trains going by, all the patterns that were that were found. Um, and then we we wrote a blog piece about that. Um, and 
the, there were some interesting outcomes of that. One is that um, the, the blasts themselves were actually quieter than, than the requirement, mm-hmm. um, which uh, addressed a, a major question for Palo Alto residents, especially who are sort of up in arms, and there's been a lot of press about it being too loud or that they were, sure. they were blasting too loud. So we were able to sort of disprove that with data science, which is fun. Uh-huh. Um, and then also, But having found that, was Caltrain then obligated to increase the volume of its horns? You know, I haven't heard any change. They did do some, um, if, you, if you read online, they did do some modifications a few years ago uh, for the bells on the top and and they've been playing around with the volumes and trying to optimize it but um, there's discussions about doing a quiet zone and, and I think some of the safety concerns have sort of ruled that out but strictly from the data side we got to see okay what's what's actually happening there um, another major um, uh, sort of finding from that which you might be able to hear in the background right now is um, that sirens actually play a much bigger role in mm. disturbance Huh. Of, uh, of sort of the day-to-day sound levels, um, the jets and the and and the ambulances and fire trucks were making a lot more noise than, than huh. Caltrain. Is that like o- overall noise or uh, or noise in you know audible frequencies that bother people or how, just, how did you determine just in that? amplitude? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we did sort of a conversion of what we were measuring in terms of the voltage off of the sensor into uh, decibels, and then mm-hmm. we were able to see the, these peaks. Um, were all due to other sort of urban sound hmm. sources. So it was interesting to sort of put that into context. And it becomes a common theme for us that a lot of times it's the outliers that really define uh, sort of the perception of whatever it is that you're measuring and not so much what's happening um, right, right. Know, hourly. Huh. So humans are imperfect at understanding what's, what's noisy. Yeah, and imperfect at ascribing what the what the real issues are. You know, a lot yeah. of times it's the thing that's most present, but the thing that's most present by definition is not an outlier. Right, right, right. So, uh, were you doing that work for Caltrain or for? That was a volunteer project, okay. actually, over the holidays, just to sort of get our hands dirty on sensing and, and yeah, yeah. give us some capability there in doing um, primary uh, sound detection and, and sensing. Just out of curiosity, what sort of software are you using for, for that? Um, for that project, we used, um, let's see, we were working with Helium, which is here in uh, San Francisco. So they have um, a, a network solution that solves the backhaul data upload. Um, and we were doing some data visualization there in order to identify um, well, a lot of the fine tuning as we were doing the deployment and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then good old um, R and R Studio in order okay. to do the, the model that did the, um, the conversion into uh, decibels. Um, yeah, and then actually, I guess R, R and Python analysis from there. So you're just importing waveforms from the sensor? That's right. We were taking uh, actually decibel values um, and then, and then time stamping those um, yeah, yeah. along a, a sampling rate. All right, so you're using Helium, which is a wide area network, uh, to, to retrieve the data um, in real time from the sensors, right? That's right, yeah. So I think one of the things that we learned in the course of the project is that you can do a lot with uh, very limited bandwidth in terms of what you might, the information you might need to pass up. And where traditionally you might want to record you know, high quality audio in order to gain the, the data that you're trying to gather, just by sensing a point of, uh, of amplitude, just understanding what the volume is at a certain sampled rate, you get more than enough data in order to ascertain what the data source is, what the maximum level is, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the advantage of using a system like Helium is you can be very low power, um, you can operate over a long period, um, and you're gathering plenty of fidelity even at a sampled rate and, mm-hmm. a, and g- gathering a numeric observation versus trying to gather um, something that's continuous like 
sound or video or or higher things with higher bandwidth requirements. Mm-hmm. So you're sending nothing but amplitude back for analysis. That's right. And are yeah. you like keeping a copy of the of the full waveform locally and then retrieving it later? No, we didn't even do that. So we did some sampling on site in order to characterize the waveforms so that we could understand the difference between the Caltrain, uh, the ambulances, the fire trucks, mm. that kind of thing. But really, what we wanted to do was generate a nice data set. So we designed yeah. for the data set, and in this case, uh, the requirement was uh, basically generating that that data point. That's some pretty sophisticated local processing you're doing, right? To distinguish between different sounds on the on the module. Sorry, no. So we're not actually doing uh, any processing on the module. All we're doing is the sample data collection and that okay. generates the data set. Um, okay. And then we're collecting that um, over the top in order to, to do our analysis. Okay, got it. What what sort of hardware are you using? So in that in that project, we were um, using Arduino sensors, Arduino okay. based sensors, um, with an Adafruit uh, microphone uh, uh-huh. with a condenser mic attached to it. I talk to more and more people who are doing like really heavyweight stuff with you know Arduino and Raspberry Pi. They're they're becoming they're classic disruptors. I mean, they're they're you know they started at the low end, at the hobbyist end, and then they're so easy to implement. Um, even if they're kind of expensive on a unit cost for something uh, smaller, medium scale, the savings in engineering and using these things are, are immense. So That's right. Yeah. Well, this example wasn't exactly heavy duty, but I can talk about one Arduino industrial uh, for yeah. sort of the final example. Um, so this is another um, project that uh, we've talked a little bit about it at different O'Reilly um, functions, but uh, we were working with a client called Optimum Energy in Seattle, and the goal for this project was to understand large-scale HVAC deployments, so uh, chilled water systems that basically um, heat and cool large uh, campuses, so mm-hmm. places like IBM, et cetera. And one of the things that we learned in the course of looking at, at the data is that a lot of times you can operate these giant uh, machines that are literally the size of a semi. Mm-hmm. Um, you can optimize them at a point very close to when they start to stall. Mm. Um, and in, in the industry, it's called chiller surging. When you start to stall the machine out, you might get some backflow. Um, so I've got an audio sample of, of what that sounds like. I'm dying to hear it. That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very bad, especially if it's your job to, to maintain these machines day in and day out. Um, so what we learned is that this is a sound that, um, that definitely tells you you're entering a, a troubled state. Um, it's yeah. not necessarily the end of the world. It's something that um, the machine can, can live with. Um, but the interesting thing about this sound and about chiller surging is in some systems, there's not a capability to log the event. Hmm. So if you imagine, um, you know, for the data scientists in the audience, you have a response variable, which is uh, basically your efficiency. You know that if you get close to the surging point that you can maximize your efficiency, but you don't want to go too far mm-hmm. and create this surge event, which can have some warranty and, and mean time to failure impact. Um, and so what we did as, a, as a, uh, an experiment um, here is we developed, um, again, an Arduino-based uh, sensor. And this was a very simple one. Um, it's based on the, the sample that ships it with Arduino called Knock Knock, <laughs> <laughs> which is basically wiring a piezo buzzer backwards into uh-huh. your Arduino uh-huh. um, to do vibration sensing. And you can deploy this on top of a chiller. 
um, and it will send over cellular, uh, mm. basically a time-stamped event that could either alert the operator um, that there's a surge occurring, but also, and more importantly, perhaps give you that uh, event that you can then use to train your machine learning algorithm mm -hmm. to know how to get close for that particular machine to that point, optimize efficiency and save money while not damaging the equipment. Interesting. So how much how much variance is there between different you know uh, machines of the same model by the same manufacturer in terms of the sound of a surge? Yeah, well that's a that's a, a great question, and actually it's sort of the foundation of um, energy efficiency and uh, and applied machine learning on a daily basis in these environments is that there is an assumption in the market that when you have similarly uh, specced equipment that it should have similar efficiency, similar behavior, and the reality is that not only is every machine different, but that each machine changes over time in different ways. Hmm. So it's it's very well suited to a data-driven approach that's a learned approach, mm -hmm. um, and it implies that there's a machine learning system atop that system, atop that um, that space, such that you can you can learn over time what the best way is to optimize. And you can do it at a couple of different timescales, right? So you're you're looking at not only you know a, a very rapid kind of real-time control of the system to to reduce surging. But also, you're looking for a trend over a long period uh, for insight into kind of machine lifespan and and yeah, how it's wearing and stuff right. like that. Yeah. So there's a couple of different outcomes in the long term. You could think about uh, machine maintenance and mm -hmm. optimization of the lifespan, um, but then on a day-to-day -day basis, optimization in terms of efficiency, and that comes mm -hmm. down to real dollars saved for organizations. So is there any mechanism in legacy uh, chillers to detect surges? Yeah, it varies by manufacturer, but again, this goes back to the comment from the beginning, a lot of these systems were designed in an age where it was presumed that you wouldn't have a machine learning algorithm pulling at the data and making changes to the control in near time. That didn't exist at the time when a lot of the, the data collection or data exhaust definition uh, was occurring. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the challenge is that a lot of times we're, we're using data for purposes for which it was not designed, right, um, right. which is, um, it's, it's opportunistic. This makes me think of a great talk that a guy named Greg Borenstein gave at the Solid Conference uh, two years ago, where he said he made the case for uh, the camera being the universal sensor, right? You, there are a lot of things that you could sense with a camera, plus a little bit of computer vision software uh, that might have required a specialized sensor before computation became so cheap and cameras became so cheap. And and this is similar, right? You're You're obviating the need for, you know, complex, expensive, specialized embedded systems inside a piece of machinery like a chiller and, and replacing it with uh, a microphone whose value is really in the software that's analyzing what's coming off the microphone. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, to, to play that forward and think about present day, and as more and more of us are involved in designing the systems that are doing the data generation, um, there is sort of this challenge to design for the unknown. We don't know in the future how things will be used. Mm -hmm. um, you know, video and, and photography are, are great examples. You know, if you think about the, the bombing um, in Boston around the marathon, mm -hmm. those security cameras weren't necessarily installed for the purpose of catching a terrorist. They were right. installed for building security, um, but the use became very important when when the context changed. Yeah, they were able to just pump all of this data into a system that uh, that now can accommodate a volume of data like that. Yeah, that's right. And in aggregate and centralized in a way that was also never designed by any of the one uh, any one node. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, how much? Tell me a little bit about the the way that you approach these problems. Um, do you and the Data Guild have a lot of uh, domain expertise in things like chillers, railroads, uh, data center operation, or is this something that you're able to approach as a generalist? 
Very much as a, as a data generalist. And I think that having be, being relatively naive about the industries that we're operating has proven to be a, a benefit. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. It also implies that we take a lot of dependency on the partners that we have um, as clients in order to really bring to us the domain knowledge, the hypotheses that they have about their space, um, their sort of tacit knowledge about different systems, and then apply machine learning and, and you know, sort of modern data science on top of that in a way that mm-hmm. can then scale um, those things that today are sort of done based on human knowledge. Yeah, yeah. All right, Cameron, this is terrifically interesting. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about this? Uh, so we're at the datagild.com, uh, and uh, I'm at cturner50 online. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. Bruner.